Amen. Thank you. Good singing today. We'll have our children can go to their children's church at this time. And we're going to ask that you take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 11 and realize this, that some parts of Daniel are so well known to us, like the lion's den and the fiery furnace, and then other parts of Daniel are so not well known to us. We are in one of those passages that is not well known to us. It's get a bit tedious, but I'm trying not to be too tedious with it. But if it is interesting, now just as a, a warning, if you like history, you'll like this. If you don't, if you like, I don't like history. You might not like this so much. Okay, no. what a way to introduce a message. But you know what? It's in the Bible, and sometimes when it comes to Scripture, don't we ask ourselves, why is this in the Bible? Like, why are all these genealogies in the Bible? And and I ask myself about this passage, why is this in the Bible? And then there's other things that I would like to be in the Bible. Like, I want to know how tall Jesus was. You know, I want to know, um, you know, his height. I want to know how much he weighed, you know, that, that kind of thing. But the Bible doesn't tell us things like that. So you know what God tells us in the Bible? What we need to know. So this is what he tells us. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. It's a, it's a powerful passage. But remember this, too. When you read Daniel chapter 11, you think you're reading history, and you are, but you're reading prophecy. This all happened about 300 and some odd years after Daniel wrote it. So Daniel received it in around 536, and what we're going to be reading today in history between the Syrian and Egyptians and Israel, it'll happen around about 200 B.C., so literally 300 and some odd years after. Isn't that amazing? So it's miraculous. I'm going to bring out some practical things, and hopefully we'll learn God's word together to make this more familiar to us. Now, let's um, turn to Daniel chapter 11, and we're going to read verse 14 as we start and then pray. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south, that was Egypt, also the robbers of thy people, shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. And let's pray. Father God, even as we get into this passage of Scripture, we see a world at war. We see wars even in the very place where bombs are being detonated and sent forth from and sent to at this very moment in that Gaza Strip. Dear God, so we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the coming, Lord Jesus, of you, the great King of peace, who will truly bring peace to this war-torn world. We pray, Lord, that you will keep the Hartman safe. I know Craig is over there and his sons who live there, Lord, that you'll watch over them, that they will be able to be a witness of your love and salvation at this time. Lord, we pray, God, that you would hinder those nations that want to uh, ultimately destroy Israel, who do not believe Israel even has a right to exist, and the terrorists such as Hamas and Iran and other groups who want to erase Israel from the face of the earth. Lord, we pray that you will protect your people Israel. We know you have a plan for Israel and that Israel will be saved. One day Israel will turn to you, Lord Jesus. But we pray also for the Palestinian people. We pray for their salvation, and we pray, God, that through these days you would turn Help them to see their hope must be in you, Lord Jesus, and that you would be their king and that you would take 
away their false views that they have toward Israel, Lord God. But we trust in you now, Lord. We pray now as we look at this message today that you'll challenge our hearts to know that we are, we are living in biblical times and we are living in a day that is, is preparing for the coming of the Antichrist and then, of course, coming for your coming, O oh Lord. So we pray you'll help us to be ready. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the message today is the world that welcomes the Antichrist. Now, I also have a sheet that I gave you. I'm not going to talk about it at all, really, but it's if you want to go through this passage verse by verse and then see specifically how it was fulfilled in history, I think that will help you. It's very general and sketchy. If you have questions, feel free to call, and, and you could talk more with me about it. But literally every line of Daniel chapter 11 is fulfilled in history. It's amazing. But what we see in this passage is a world back in the days of Antiochus the Great was preparing in a way for the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a type of Antichrist. And just as they were preparing for this type of an Antichrist, we, in a sense, are preparing for the Antichrist. And I say we must learn the lessons from history or we will be doomed to what? Repeat it. And you've heard that expression. That's true. So here's a lesson in history, and we are seeing a repeat, if you will, of what was going on even 200 B.C. We are moving toward the greatest tyranny that the world will ever see. The world has known awful tyranny and persecution and the death of its citizens. But we are going to come to the worst tyranny, the greatest tribulation, Jesus said, that the world has ever seen, and that's when who comes into power? The Antichrist. So that's where we're heading. <laughs> so this passage, and I ask myself, why is it in the Bible? I believe at least one reason why this passage is of miraculous and practical importance for us is it reveals the characteristics that ex existed in the Greek Empire in the days of Antiochus the Great. And it was showing how what was going to happen that would lead in, usher in this wicked type of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. And I'm saying today this, there are parallels between what was going on then and what is happening now. And I want us to see four parallels I see in this passage of Scripture that existed then, that are existing now, and that is getting this world to a place where it will welcome and receive a tyrannical leader. Isn't it a shame that the world will receive an Antichrist, but not Jesus Christ? It just shows you the world we're living in. So let's look at four traits in the Greek Empire that led to this Antiochus Epiphanes, and you know what's interesting and amazing is he comes into power peacefully, and so does the Antichrist. So Antiochus Epiphanes is the probably most perfect type of an Antichrist in the Bible. And in verses 21 through 35, we read all about the Antichrist, so we'll get there next time. But so now we're on the doorstep, if you will, of, of the world welcoming this 
type of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. And I'm saying there are similar traits evident today that will usher in the Antichrist. Does that make sense? Does that make, okay, does that make some sense? Okay. I always want to make sure my thinking is sound here. <laughs> I think I'm still thinking pretty, thinking pretty soundly. So the four things are this. Number one, we see in this passage a defection from truth amongst the people of God. A truth defection. And it is, this is part of what gives Antiochus power to ultimately take over. And what gives Antiochus the great power in this passage. And clearly what we see later on, too, is that in, when Antiochus Epiphanes did that great devastation, he had the help of apostate Jewish leaders, especially leaders that were in the temple who had sided with his worldly ways. There were truth deserters, and we see that in the verse that we read. I believe that verse 14 where it says, In those times there shall stand up many against the king of the south, that's Egypt, and also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves. That's the apostate Jewish people. And they're called robbers of the people who will exalt themselves. These are Jewish people who determined not to be faithful to the God of the Bible. But they were looking for a political savior in Antiochus the Great. Do you remember Isaiah 31? During the prophet Isaiah's day, when they were facing captivity by Babylon, Isaiah said, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses. And do not look to the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And I thought that was interesting because as we come to this passage of Scripture, Israel had looked to Egypt for help. Egypt has been their help for a hundred years. You know what? They're tired of Egypt. They want a new help. They're going to look to the king of the north, Syria. They're tired of Egypt. And now these truth defectors are going to look to even a worse ruler, and that is Antiochus, called the great. I call him Antiochus, the not-so-great. So revolution is in the air as we come into this passage of Scripture. There are compromised Israelites called robbers of the people. They saw in Antiochus a political savior. And as we look at the life of Antiochus, there are two things that stood out to me about him. One, his strong determination. He was a man who wouldn't quit. And two, his self-will. But he was determined and he exercised his self-will for his own power, not for the glory of God. And who's behind all the actions, if you will, of these pagan kings at this time? Who is directing them, influencing them, and tempting them? Who's behind the scenes? Remember from Daniel chapter 10, the satanic fallen angels, the, the prince of Persia, is behind a lot of what's going on. So as we come into this passage of Scripture, remember that Antiochus the great, had been defeated by Egypt in Raphia. And we talked about that two weeks ago. Raphia is down in this area, incredibly the very same area where there is war still today. Isn't that amazing? 
So down in this area, Antiochus the Great have been defeated by Egypt. And that was verses 10 through 12. But so what does he do? Verse 13 says, and let me just read it and try to make some sense of some of these details. It says, the king of the north shall return. So that's the Assyrian king. He goes back and he shall set forth a multitude greater than the former. So what history tells us is that he went eastward. He marched east and he actually had a lot of military victories fighting east, and he strengthened his kingdom and the spoils of battle. His army grew once again. And then after a number of years, he said, I want to go after Egypt again. See, Antiochus the Great, who was called the Great before him? Alexander the Great. Who does Antiochus want to be like? Alexander. What did Alexander rule? The world. What does Antiochus want to rule? That's his goal, right? The world. So Antiochus says, We've got more strength now. And verse number 13 again, he shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. So he's going to go attack once again. And that's these purple lines that you see here. And he uses determination. You know, ungodly people are very determined in this world for power, for money. For fame, aren't they? We should have that determination for the glory of God and to seek the Lord and to please the Lord. We have to be determined to live for God in this day. If you're not determined to live for Jesus Christ, you could get washed away by the determination of this world system against you. So he's determined. But if you also look down in verse 16, if I could just skip down there, it says, He's going to come against him. It's talking about, again, this Antiochus the Great. And it says he's going to do according to his own will. And none shall stand before him. And he will stand in the glorious land. He's going to attack Egypt and get the victory over and, and have control, if you will, over Palestine. The glorious land, of course, is, is Israel. And it says, and which by his hand shall be consumed. So he's going to demonstrate his, his own self-will. You see that? In this chapter, who demonstrates their self-will? Go back to verse 3 of chapter 11, and that's Alexander. Alexander did according to his will. Alexander was a man of great self-will. And not just Alexander, but if you go all the way up as well to Chapter 11, verse 36, this is the Antichrist himself. The king shall do according to his will. So Antiochus the Great is exercising his self-will as Alexander had, as the Antichrist will. Determination. And he teams with these apostate Jewish people. And the result of what they're going to do is Antiochus the Great is going to come into the glorious land, control the trade routes of Palestine, which were very lucrative, bring a lot of money into his, his kingdom. And then what it says at the end of verse 16, it says, he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be what? What is the last word of verse 16? What does it say? By his hand shall be what? Consumed. That is, bring a destruction upon it. But this isn't a physical destruction at this point, I don't believe. I believe he's talking about a spiritual destruction. He's going to consume them because the apostates are going to turn the people of Israel 
predominantly away from the Lord, there's going to be a major apostasy amongst the Jewish people at this time so that they're willing to receive hope. Antiochus the Epiphanes, the, 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 the type of an Antichrist. So, what happens then, as I said, in verses 10 through 12, Antiochus the Great loses against Egypt. He goes back to his home, fights eastward, gains strength, and now he's going to come forth against the king of the south. Verse 14, it says, In those times there shall stand up against the king of the south, the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come. So that's Antiochus the Great. He's going to come, and it says he's going to cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. That verse is basically just saying that Antiochus is going to come upon Egypt, and no one will be able to stand against him. And the battle is actually fought, and history tells us, because there's a specific a specific reference here, it says he shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities. So Egypt had fenced cities. I'm going to just stay here in front of the screen and I'll use my cursor. Egypt had fenced cities in the north here. Do you see this? In Panias. And Panias, by the way, the name of Panias was changed to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made the great confession. That's also very interesting. But Fence cities were there, and this was the Battle of Pineus, Pineus that Antiochus wins. And then if you go up here to Sidon, this is where history says he actually seeds the city with a mount. You know, the idea of a mount is they attacked the walls of the city. They built up mounds of dirt, or they, or they built uh, ladders to, to attack the walls of the city and break down the walls, or maybe siege the city and uh, to, to make famine within and to, to defeat them. And that's what it says in verse number 15, to cast up a mount. That's a specific terminology for a particular battle strategy that was used on the city of Sidon historically. Okay, so it's a fulfillment, a very specific fulfillment of prophecy. But what I want to say by way of application here, again, is that the defection of truth of the professing people of God is kind of laying the groundwork for Antiochus Epiphanes, this type of Antichrist to come. And that's what's going on today. In other words, when the Antichrist comes into power, who is, whose support is he going to have? He's going to have the support of a professing church that has apostatized from the truth of God's word. And I believe we're seeing that even in our day. Now go with me, please, to a scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We are warned in the New Testament of a coming apostasy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, let no man deceive you because there must come a falling away first, and then the man of sin will be revealed. So there's going to be an apostasy 
before the Antichrist is revealed. We are living in this day of apostasy. When I say apostasy, I'm saying that mainline denominations that at one time were faithful to God have turned against the foundations of our Christian faith. In other words, they deny the authority of the Bible. They deny the virgin birth. They deny that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. They deny his bodily resurrection. And I'm talking about mainline denominations. Basically, you could say any denomination, if you will. It's some Baptist denominations, yes. It's Methodist denominations, yes. It's Lutheran denominations, yes. It's, and I'm not saying every Lutheran and every Baptist or every Methodist or every Episcopalian or, or every Presbyterian. But there's apostasy, widespread apostasy in all these denominations, a turning away from the truth. And we're told it's going to happen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. And that, of course, reminds us of Roman Catholic system, which apostate Protestants will unite with, and I believe that will be the religious system of the Antichrist. So what I'm saying is we see this apostasy 200 BC in the time of Antiochus the Great to prepare for the Antiochus Epiphanes, who is this type of Antichrist, and we're seeing an apostasy now. And the, the challenge for us don't go along with it. <laughs> Be faithful to God. Be faithful to his word. The devil wants us to be consumed. That's the word that Antiochus did to the people of God. He consumed their faith with his self-will and his determination. I say to you, be strong. You know the difference between Egypt controlling the promised land and Syria controlling the promised land. Egypt controlled it for 100 years before this point in Daniel. The difference is this. Egypt wanted to control the money. They wanted to control the economic power that flowed through the trade. But Syria wanted to control the culture, the beliefs, the practice. They wanted to change everything about, and that's led to this apostasy. And I believe there are self-exalting robbers of the people who want to exalt themselves they're among us. They're in our own nation. God has been forgotten. His word has been scorned. The family unit is being destroyed. And that's really, a, they want to destroy the church. They want to destroy the family. We have to keep our family strong. If you're married, stay strong in your marriage to love your wife and be faithful to your husband and love your children. This world is not going to help us have strong families or a strong church. The LGBT movement combining with the critical race theory is putting questions upon who's a man, who's a woman, and why even get married in the first place. Our faith as Christians, believing the Bible, we are more out of step with our culture than we ever have been. 
And we're not far away from being criminalized by those who are in power. And I don't believe I'm overstating it. We will soon not be tolerated because there are self-exalting robbers. And yes, I'm going to say people using Marcus, Marxist ideology to destroy us here. These robbers have taken over academia. They've been in our Ivy League institutions for many years, but now they're in kindergarten. And they're trying to question your children whether your little girl is a little girl or not. And I believe they're trying to recruit our children, in a sense, for their purposes. We must be strong. We've gotten away from God in our nation, and we need to turn back to the Lord. I believe there is an apostate church that is growing in America. It's going to fully unite with Rome, and it will be fully supported by the Antichrist. I just saw this. It's just one example I could give, and then I'll move on. But this is the first transgender man who said he was a woman and was recently elected bishop, not just a pastor, but a bishop of a group of churches, I believe, out in California, the evangelical. How's that for evangelical? Evangelical Lutheran Church. Reverend, his name is Megan Rohr, elected bishop. So this is becoming more and more acceptable to mainline denominations is what I'm saying. This is part of the apostasy. It's going to be people like this who are so deceived and leading others who will one day unite with this Antichrist in his false religious system. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 17. The second thing I want us to see today, the second trait in the Greek empire that's with us today, I call it child exploitation. So go back in your text with me, and what we'll see here, as I mentioned, that Antiochus wins power in Palestine. But now he sets his face really toward Egypt. So full of self-will and determination, he wants to rule the world. But the problem in ruling the world for him now is the growing threat of power in the next kingdom that has been prophesied. Who will be the next kingdom after Greece? There was Medo-Persia, there was Babylon, there was Medo-Persia, there was Greece, and after Greece, God prophesied there's going to be who? Rome, that's right. So Rome is growing in power, and Antiochus is trying to figure out a way to defeat Rome. And now he wants to manipulate and exploit his daughter to do it. So here's what he does. Let's just read. I'll, I'll just read the points here, and then we'll look at the scriptures. So Antiochus is going to use his daughter. We've all heard of Cleopatra. Cleopatra is not Elizabeth Taylor, for any of you who have seen that movie. I don't know the theme of that movie, but I'm sure they really butcher true history. Okay, There were actually a lot of Cleopatras in history, but this Cleopatra... In this verse 18 that we're going to read, I'm sorry, verse 17, we're going to read, is Cleopatra the first, okay? And she's actually prophesied in the Bible. She is the daughter of Antiochus the Great. And Antiochus is going to use his daughter to fulfill his selfish ambition to rule the world. Now, how's he going to do that? He's going to give his 
eight-year-old daughter to marriage. To marry the young king of Egypt, who's only 16 years old himself. So he hopes through this marriage, who can now control Egypt? He can. He thinks he's going to. And so what he's going to do is corrupt his daughter, manipulate her, exploit her to control Egypt. And once he has control of Egypt, uniting the power of Egypt with the power of Syria, he can defeat who? Rome. But his plan fails. So let's read verse 17. It says, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom. So he's going to enter Egypt with all of his power and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women. So he's going to give his daughter, Cleopatra, to the king of Egypt, corrupting her, it says. But she shall not stand on his side, neither for him. And history actually tells us that his plan backfired because Cleopatra actually loved her husband, the king of Egypt, more than her father and did not assist her father in his, in his scheme to unite, to defeat Rome. But I want to make an application at this point. This is really an awful exploitation of a child, isn't it? To use a 10-year-old girl for your own political purposes? That's evil. We could all agree. A 10-year-old girl? You say, well, that was then. That's the way they treated children. But you know how they treat children today? It's even worse. Because we know that there's sex trafficking of minors all around the world. It's here and it's in Europe, and it's in Asia, and it's in the Far East. It's everywhere. Children are being exploited in a multi-billion dollar industry. National Geographic had a very extensive article about it. Have you ever seen this website? It's called Backpage. Thankfully, the FBI took it down. It was finally shut down in 2018. This man, his name is called Ferrer. He is the modern-day face of depravity and child exploitation. He was the CEO of this website that was available in 431 U.S. cities, another 444 worldwide cities, and basically they would post sex ads a million a day. And I don't really want to get too graphic. It's so disgusting. But basically, you could order what you wanted to order at whatever age you wanted. Like you could order a pizza. And this is awful. This is what's going on even today. Now, just a few weeks ago, I'm sure you saw the image of a three-year-old and a five-year-old Ecuadorian girl being brought to the United States, but being dropped like boxes, like packages over the wall. Have you seen that? You saw that in the news? It was in the news. They literally dropped a three- and five-year-old children over the wall. And I read that there are, in March, 
Two months ago, this is happening right now, and we've heard what's happening at our border. But there were 19,000 unaccompanied children who entered United States custody in March. And we've seen pictures of them and these conditions that they're sleeping in. And it's horrible. How are these children getting there? Who is putting them there? Who's behind this? Now, one expert estimates that 60% of the Latin American children, and this was from an article, by the way, in the New York Post, and Lara Logan, she was a famed war correspondent. She was, I believe, providing the New York Post the information, and just know that's the uh, source of this. One expert estimates that 60% of the Latin American children who set to cross the border alone or with smugglers have been caught by the cartels, are being abused in child pornography and sex trafficking. And I'm quoting directly from that article. And the article went on to say this. It says, sometimes an adult, they need a child to get over the border. So they have to buy a child, if you will, from the cartel. And then when they get to where they are going, wherever they're going, they give the child back to the cartel to go back to South America, wherever, just to make the trip again. This is awful manipulation. This is exploitation of children. It's happening in our world today. And it's for power. It's for people's political power. Cartels are getting rich like crazy off of these precious children. And, and others are getting power uh, politically through this through by whatever means. I'm simply saying that when people use children for their own selfish purposes, that is a culture that has become so far away from God that it will receive the Antichrist. Number three, there is an entitlement mentality. Now, Alexander the Great was a man who ruled the world. And as I mentioned, Antiochus called himself the Great. And what Antiochus wants is to be great as Alexander. But he was really Antiochus the Greedy. Power-hungry, driven by passion. So what does he do now? So now, now okay, let's, so let's just back up. Remember... Antiochus the Great now has taken control of Palestine through that battle of Paneas. He drove Egypt out of Palestine. Then he matched up his daughter with the king of Egypt, so he thinks he can control Egypt. So now what's his next step? He wants to go after the rising power of Rome. So what does he do? He he gets involved in a battle called the Battle of Magnesia. And if you let's read the verse in verse 18, please, of Daniel chapter 11, verse 18. It says, after this, that is after he gives his daughter to marriage to the king of Egypt, he shall set his face unto the isles and shall take many. That's Greece. The isles here is Greece because Greek, Greece is a land with 6,000 islands. And, he's, and it says he shall take many. And history says when Antiochus went westward, at first he was successful. And he set up a base in Thermopylae. And it says he shall take many. But a prince of his, for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. So this prince, if you look up here on the screen, is 
Scipio Asiaticus from Rome. And he comes and basically tells Antiochus the Great, don't come any further. This is not your right, because Rome was rising and moving that way. And Antiochus the Great would have none of it. And he basically gave Scipio Asiaticus an earful, and he reproached him. So it was like two bullies, you know, bullying each other. But the bully Antiochus was outbullied by the new bully in town, Rome. And they won and routed Antiochus out of Greece and out of, of, uh, of Asia at that time. And so Rome routes Antiochus in this battle of Magnesia. And Antiochus was forced out of Greece and Asia Minor. And the westward advance of Syrian power stopped. And Rome would take up that vacuum. So here again is the map. If you look here at the map, and you see here the battle of uh, the red circle with the swords, that's Magnesia. That's this battle we're talking about. So Antiochus had come across here toward Asia Minor. He had gone into Greece, but he was forced backward. And then the big battle was here. And it says the comment on the Holman Bible map, very interesting. And if you're looking for a good Bible geography book, get the Holman Bible Atlas. It says in the Holman Atlas, the Romans decisively beat Antiochus III, demand forfeiture of all Seleucid claims in Asia Minor, as well as a large sum of money. So he would, we would call that today he had to pay for his what? His war crimes, for the damage of war he had done to the world. So now Antiochus the Great, we're going to see, sinks his nation into debt. But good for him. The next verse says, in verse 19, he goes home to his own fort, the fort of his own land, that is to his own strength, and he shall stumble and fall, and he shall not be found. That is, he dies within a year of losing that battle at Magnesia, and his son will take over rule for him. But I want to just stop here and make a quick application, if I may. Because this chapter really tells us about Gentile kingdoms. And what are Gentile kingdoms all about? They're about power, and it's like constant war. You know, think about our lives here in America. It's like there's been one war after another after another. And I don't want to be misunderstood one way or the other. I'm not making a political statement at all here. But I want to put up on the screen a statement, and I believe it's a great statement of warning given by a hero war general of World War II, General Dwight Eisenhower, who then served two terms as, as our president of the United States. And when he was leaving office, he warned our nation of what he viewed as our greatest threat. He said the greatest threat, one of the great threats facing America in the days ahead, and this was in 1961, so here we are 40 years later, right? He said it's the military-industrial complex composed of military contractors and lobbyists perpetuating endless and windless. Now, he didn't say endless and windless, but that's the idea of it. The idea of the military-industrial complex is that America would get sunk into war for the purpose of helping people get rich. Because war is money for some people, you know? And he warned against that. And you think about from 1961 till now, wow, 
What's happened in America? We've voted the Bible out of our schools. We've gotten rid of prayer. We've had assassinations of, of a president, JFK, as well as Martin Luther King. It's like in the 60s and early 70s, America was on fire with the Vietnam War, the very kind of war Eisenhower was warning against. And really, you know, ever since then, ever since really World War II, and, and again, I, I don't want to be misunderstood, but we've been in a, a certain wars that have seemed endless and unwinnable, and you even wonder, are we even trying to win them? You know what it is? It's the military-industrial complex. It's, it's the same kind of wars that Antiochus was involved in for his own power, for his own pride. And I believe that that opens the door ultimately for the Antichrist because he's going to be a man of war. The fourth thing I want to say is tax tyranny. That's the fourth thing that happens in the kingdom of Syria leading to Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes. And so let me just read the points that I have here and they're in your notes. Okay, so I mentioned already Syria was forced by Rome to pay taxes for the war damages. So what that does is it sinks the nation into debt. So the new king, which is the son of Antiochus, the not so great, he is forced now to pay this burdensome tax to Rome. So how did he get the money? He starts plundering temples to raise money. And some say he, he, was, he was killed doing that. Others say that he was assassinated by his chief tax collector. And you know, the Bible says some interesting things about tax. I don't want to get off too far afield on this, but you remember when the kingdom of, of uh, Judah and Israel were divided? Israel's in the north and Judah in the south. Remember one of the things that divided them is when King Rehoboam, the king of Judah, started taxing the Israelites. They're like, we're not paying taxes to you. You know, taxes get people upset, you know. Who really likes to pay taxes? I, we know the Bible, what it says, and we're, we're willing to do that. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. But when government has absolute power to take everything you have, well, there has to be maybe an end to it somewhere. You have to say, wait, taxation could be a form of ro a government robbery too. Anyway, I don't want to get off into that. I'm saying this, though. The nation was heavily burdened by taxation. And that left the people wondering what to do, because then this king didn't last. So let's read the verse, please, in verse 20, because it says, Then shall stand up in his estate, that is, who will stand up for Antiochus the Great, a raiser of taxes. Again, you see the amazing fulfillment, because the, the, the kingdom had been indebted through war damage. So now the next king was a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So he did not die in battle. As I said, many people believe he was assassinated or poisoned. So that's a fulfillment. Isn't that amazing? Incredible. Tax tyranny. I looked this up just out of curiosity. When did we go over $1 trillion in debt? Now, do you know how much a trillion dollars is? I don't. That's a lot of money. But they talk about trillions now. We're going to have a $2 trillion deal. And, you know, this. They like talk about trillions like $10 now. I mean, it's unbelievable. Isn't it unbelievable? Billions. Forget billions. The government deals in trillions. 
But I looked it up. In 1982 is when we first went over $1 trillion. So our country started, what, 1776, whatever, you know, organized a few years after that. So it took us a few hundred years to get to $1 trillion. And it's taken us just however many years that's been, from 82 to now, is that like, how many years is that? 39? Yeah, okay, 39 years. To go from $1 trillion to $28 trillion. That's what our debt is now, and it's going up fast. And there, so the point is, is that you owe the government eighty-five thousand dollars. All of us do, so <laughs> to pay off that debt. So we are, we are being like, we are a nation under such debt. How are we going to pay that back? I have no idea. But I do know this, and I really do believe this. I believe that, like in. Antiochus the Great's day, he, he sank his kingdom into these different things. There was a defection of truth. There was an exploitation of children. There was a, an entitlement mentality. And then there was a tax tyranny because of the oppressive debt. I see the same things are going on in our own country. And I see America falling. And we can't have a sense, well, we're entitled, we're America. No, other kingdoms have come and gone. I see America falling, and I see another kingdom rising, just as Antiochus, in a sense, the kingdom was falling, and they brought in the Antichrist to kind of, I say the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, to try to save it. But it was falling, ultimately, to Rome. But our kingdom is falling. And ultimately, I believe the Antichrist is going to rise up in that vacuum to try to bring it together. And he will bring the greatest tyranny upon this world. But the kingdom that will never fall is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's what's ultimately coming. So I say to you, be faithful to God. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. And it's going to get tough in these days. It's not going to be easy to live for God. So as we close, go to Luke chapter 18. And we'll take the words of Jesus as we close today. It's not going to be easy to stand for Jesus in these times. There's going to be a lot of pressure upon us. There's going to be pressure. I'll just say this by the grace of God. As long as I'm here anyway, I'm not going to be pressured not to stand by where the Bible is clear. Where the Bible is clear, we will stand clearly on the Bible. And we're not going to be um, intimidated from denying our Savior or our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? But it's not going to be easy. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, in verse number 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. That is, those who cry to God day and night. God will, will avenge them speedily. He will hear their prayers. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, how many of you ever read that? You've read that? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? I read that as a question. It's a question in our Bible. How do you read the answer? Do you read it a, a lot or do you read, it's going to be tough and there's not going to be a lot of faith on the earth. How have you read it? I've always read it more that 
you know, when the Son of Man comes, what, it, what does it say? It says, in the last days, what's, what's going to happen? Perilous times, a falling away from the faith. There will be a, a, a apostasy. There will be doctrines of demons flooding our society and our culture. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith? I say, may he find faith from you. May he find faith from us. May he find faith in churches like Heritage Baptist Church that we would stand strong for him. In his love, keep preaching the gospel. Amen? Let's stand together as we pray. The door is opening wide, friends, for the coming of the Antichrist. But lift up your eyes, because the blessed hope of the rapture of the church can happen at any time. And I do believe the rapture is going to happen before the Antichrist is revealed. So let us be faithful to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are conquerors and victors. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And we thank you, Lord, even for that scripture memory verse that we did learn today. As Pastor Carmine broke it down for us, that whoso keepeth his word in him verily is a love for God perfected. Lord, we desire to have that love for you by treasuring and guarding and keeping and obeying your word. So thank you, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to keep your word, and may our love for you shine and grow in the days ahead so that when you come, you will find faith on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.